Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Mayanta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I am Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. We are lucky to have with us today one of the foremost scholars and advocates fighting to keep people, and especially women, safe from crime and harassment on the internet, Professor Marianne Franks. We are thrilled to have with us today Professor Marianne Franks who at the time of this recording is a professor of law and Michael R. Klein Distinguished Scholar Chair at the University of Miami School of Law, but is actually in transition to a new position at the George Washington University Law School. Congrats on the new gig. (laughs) Marianne is a well-known expert who works at the intersection of civil rights and technology, and she has written an award-winning book called The Cult of the Constitution, Our Deadly Devotion to Guns and Free Speech in 2019. She has a new book coming out next year called Fearless Speech, which we can't wait to hear more about. She has also published scholarship in the Harvard Law Review, California Law Review, and many others, and has published broadly in the popular press as well, including in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Newsweek. Marianne is also an advocate and the president and the legislative and tech policy director of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative that works to combat online abuse and discrimination. For the last decade, she has worked on legislation to fight non-consensual pornography and especially so-called revenge porn. Marianne has a JD from Harvard Law School and a doctorate and master's degree from Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. Before coming to UMiami, she served as a Bigelow Fellow and Lecturer in Law at the University of Chicago Law School, where we actually worked together for a year in that program. Marianne, welcome. How did you first get interested in the harassment and harming of people and especially women on the internet? Thanks so much for having me on the show. And it's a long story in some ways, but I'll give you the abbreviated version, which is that I have been worried about the internet, especially its impact on women and girls since I was a junior in college. And so that everybody understands exactly how far back that goes. That's the 1990s when the internet is really starting to become a common thing. So I'm a bit of a digital immigrant in that sense, watching the world change around me uh, as the internet becomes more prevalent. And I wrote uh, my first peer-reviewed piece uh, for a humanities journal at the time about the dangers of the internet. And what I perceived at the time was this kind of idealism about what then was often referred to as cyberspace and how there was so much in the air about how this was going to be transformative, everybody was going to be liberated, all of our problems were going to be solved by this utopian realm. And I wrote a piece at the time saying, I don't think that's what's going to happen. And and so that was really the start. So that's 1998, it gets published in 99. And then Throughout my studies, before I go to law school, I'm broadly interested in the question of violence against women um, in particular, how that is a product in many ways of objectification of women and exploitation, especially through sexual means. And then when I went to law school and immediately after law school, I started really focusing on the issue of online abuse of women 
focusing on the question of sexual harassment and discrimination and what kind of form that was going to take now that we had all of these new technologies at our disposal. And so that was kind of the broad approach I was taking. I was starting to focus on those questions. I'd written a couple of law review articles about this. And I mentioned this because that is how I met uh, Dr. Holly Jacobs, who went on to found the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, who is not a lawyer, who was working on her PhD at the time that she contacted me in about 2012, 2013. She'd read one of my Law View articles because she had been the target of non-consensual pornography. Her images had been published without her consent. And everywhere she turned, whether it was to lawyers, to police officers, to her employer, anyone, she was mostly told that this was not a crime. She was told that this was, if anything, maybe her fault for having uh, had these images made or sent these images. And what led her to me was the sense of desperation of how, well, if this isn't against the law, it should be. And uh, she read my work and she thought, well, you are someone that I could talk to about how we might be able to change the law. So in many ways, I went from this very broad based concern about various types of sexual harassment and discrimination and abuse to uh, zeroing in on the question of what we sometimes call now image based sexual abuse because uh, Dr. Jacobs found me and because together she and I, alongside Professor Daniel Citron and others, founded this organization that then attempted to address these issues from a, a comprehensive standpoint. Could you please uh, explain what it is that people mean when they talk about revenge porn and why it's really part of a larger problem with non-consensual pornography? One of the major issues that we struggle with with this problem is what to call it. So the, the naming conventions have actually proven to be very troubling uh, here because it was called revenge porn as far as we can tell, mostly because that was the term that perpetrators used when they were advertising their websites as revenge porn websites. And so the name that we had for it in those first years referring to it that way was troubling because it was, it, it was not reflective of the survivor or victim experience. It was really reflective more of this kind of colloquialism that perpetrators had come up with. And it was troubling, not just because of that reason, but because the term revenge really, I think, set people up to think several incorrect things about the phenomenon. One is that it's always some sort of personal relationship that has gone uh, wrong in some way, which is some number of cases, but not all. Another is that it sort of implies that the, the victim has done something to deserve this kind of retaliation, which is also very troubling. And, you know, just the term itself just seemed incredibly disrespectful and incorrect uh, in many ways. And the porn term was troubling too, because obviously what people sometimes mean by that term is consensual material. And what we're talking about here is not. And so we have been since the very beginning trying to, trying to figure out what the best terminology is to use here. Replacing the term revenge uh, was, was the easiest part of this because that was so clearly inaccurate and wasn't contributing really anything to the understanding of the issue. So moving that to emphasize the non-consensual nature of what's happening here, that, that part was uh, simpler. The question of whether to retain the term pornography is the thornier one. Because once again, if people are assuming that the term conveys something like consent, then it seems contradictory. And there was a concern that this would seem to kind of shame or to try to, to, to attach some kind of stigma to the 
the very production of intimate images themselves or to suggest that naked photos are somehow inherently pornographic, none of which we wanted to do as advocates or people working in the space. But what we did want to convey was this is sexual imagery and it is being used against people's will to turn those people into sexual entertainment for strangers. And it really was difficult to come up with any other term that conveyed that specific part. So we have retained that term. I say as a scholar, I've retained the term non-consensual pornography. What we have as an organization sort of moved on to is the broader term to encompass that and many other kinds of abuse as image-based sexual abuse. Speaking specifically about the kinds of private images that are made public, we now try to use the term non-consensually distributed intimate images to get away from some of the problematic um, connotations of, of pornography. So it's a little bit in flux, but it is a, it's a complicated story about what to, to term it. It was certainly prescient of you back in the late 1990s to realize the internet had the potential to to be bad, which I think now in the in 2023, as we're recording this, we're like, isn't it kind of more bad than good in a lot of ways? Um, and and I'm curious of a couple of things. At that time, did you recognize that the bads of the internet would disproportionately adversely impact women. And also, you know, we've talked to different experts as well as just people who have gone through experiences of being harassed, not only in terms of cyber stalking, but also just harassment in real life. And we had a really good conversation about that recently with the co-hosts of the Ex-Wives Undercover podcast and another lawyer who weighed in on the conversation talking about essentially how many times the ex-wives undercover, the two women involved there who are both ex-wives of the same person, he had in the teens number of restraining orders taken out against him for harassing people. And these orders were hard to obtain in the first place, the amount of evidence you had to present even to get an order. And then they really weren't adhered to. He just was able to continue to harass people. And so I think it's really smart that in your work, you are focusing in on one area of harassment, so cyber harassment, because it is such a large problem across different areas. And so a question I have for you is, well, did you know back in the 90s that this was going to disproportionately affect women? Am I right that it does still currently? And what do you make of that? The fact that we have weaker laws to protect women from harassment than we do for the kinds of abusive behaviors or illegal behaviors that aren't more gender based. Did I know back in the 1990s that it was going to be worse for women? I, I think I did, although my own consciousness raising around the issues that affected women in particular were just sort of starting around that time. I think maybe I was less prescient than I was just generally pessimistic about things that people really liked. <laughs> so, But I will say that the kind of stepping off point for me in the 1990s when I wrote this in 98 uh, was the Declaration of Independence in Cyberspace by John Perry Barlow, who, who had written that in 1996. And Barlow was one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which continues to be incredibly influential uh, over tech policy. 
And one of the things that that struck me about the declaration, other than its extraordinary level of pretentiousness, was that there was a, a moment in it where he says, you know, we are creating this new world that's going to be completely free of all discrimination. And he mentions race, military status, and, and something like order of birth. There's nothing in there about how we need to be or th- even thinking about gender discrimination. There's nothing in there about it. And I thought, what an interesting omission to think, first of all, that you're having a revolution of sorts and that you're going to invoke this kind of terminology. But even if you're going to do that, how very like, you know, the American Revolution itself to not notice, right, that there are the kinds of of things that are staying the same or likely to stay the same are things like uh, sex discrimination, also racial discrimination, but certainly the questions of how this impacts women and girls. And if you look at the early history of the 90s that people sometimes invoke now as this magical moment before everything gets screwed up, it wasn't. It was always pretty bad for women. From the very start, people use those forms of technology to to harass women. That was one of the first things that people used it for. And so we have there was never a magical time when when everybody was sort of roaming free online. And so I think that became much clearer when you're looking throughout the 90s. And then when I wrote my first law review piece um, around 2008, which was called Unwilling Avatars, at that point, I really was focused on that specific question of how we are going to be engaged in this project of liberation or, or dematerialization or whatever it is in a really uneven sense, because women are going to get re-embodied as opposed to escape from embodiment online. It won't be a way of... Uh, moving around harassment, it's going to be a way to intensify it. And by that time, I think it was pretty clear because revenge porn, as it was called then, had already started. There were manipulations of celebrities' faces into pornographic imagery in the 90s, very crudely done, but what we would now um, recognize can be done in a much more sophisticated way. But this larger question of why is it that things are so much worse, and and, and to answer your question, I do think things continue to be so much worse for women that being said, I mean, the baseline here is the internet has been bad for all of us, I think, on, on balance. When we when we think about all the ways in which people's lives, I think, have been made worse by certain forms of technology, that's across the board. But like society itself and like our legal system itself, there are certain people who are made more vulnerable and more and are more subject to exploitation. And part of the reason why we can't seem to shake that and why every new technological revolution, instead of freeing us from that actually sort of imprisons us in that it's because we refuse as a society to confront it. We, we keep pretending as though we are this egalitarian society that just needs more tools to just become more like what we are. And you can really trace this throughout the conversations around uh, non-consensual pornography and other forms of abuse, that the first phase is always to just tell the victims, well, you just should have acted differently. Just don't have those pictures. Just don't engage in these habits. And then this wouldn't happen to you. And then what do we see happen next? Well, then, of course, the rise of hidden cameras means that, look, you might never have uh, voluntarily given any images to anyone, but this could still happen. And even if that doesn't happen, now we have digitally manipulated pornographic images. That means that you may just have a couple of innocuous photos of your face on social media, and that's enough for someone to generate this of you. All of which is to say, when you don't confront the underlying misogyny behind these attitudes of forcing women to appear in ways that against their will, that misogyny will always find a way. And so we have to deal with that underlying issue, certainly not blame the victim, but also not 
think that around the corner, there won't be ways to evade anything that a victim or a woman can do in that situation to try to protect herself. We haven't really addressed the, the problem here and that drive to, to force people to appear this way, then we're not ever going to fix the problem. Wow. So look, I don't know how well you can do this on the spot. I guess we'll find out. But in a nutshell, how do we confront the underlying misogyny? What can we do? Well, I do think it really starts with admitting it. I I can't tell you how many times, even in the last few years, I will be invited to a conference or asked to speak on a panel, whether it's about social media or whether it's about AI or whether it's about augmented reality. And the conversation always begins in this kind of, look at all the wonderful things that are are being uh, offered through these, these kinds of tools. And then there'll be some sort of question about how, well, you know, what could we possibly do? Well, how can we learn, right? And there'll inevitably be, especially, either someone who's actually representing the tech industry or someone who works um, with them to say, you know, we're trying to catch up. We really want to learn more about what we can do. And you just think, what are you talking about? You've known this from the beginning, right? There, there isn't a company now that hasn't been personally responsible for creating systems that are designed in a way that can be used to exploit and harass women. That is, there is no point in 2023 where anyone can say, oh, you're you're saying that there's problems that we need to catch up with. This is incredibly bad faith at this point, right? We have known about this problem for a really long time. You know, you actually have people from Meta saying things like, right, how can we make virtual reality less, less of a negative experience for women? And this is coming on the heels of an experience where, the first thing that happened in Meta's virtual reality was that a woman was groped and they had to fairly quickly because there was such an outcry to impose this kind of boundary zone, right? That that makes it difficult for people to do that. But why wasn't that a feature that was mandatory before and a default, right? That Because I think the suggestion when it first happened was, well, why didn't she turn it on? Which again, it's that same move of like, it's your fault as the user, why you didn't protect yourself, but also you designed it this way. And for you to show up over and over again to these panels and discussions and hearings and say, we're really sorry that people are using our wonderful product for bad and it's shocking and terrible and we wish that we could do something about it. And the answers have always been there, which is to say, stop acting as though men are your only subjects. Stop acting like they are the universal subjects here and start confronting the fact that any tool you give to society right now is going to be used against women and other minorities. And talk about what you're going to do to combat that. That that has to be your first question. Well, dating app operators have certainly not been an exception to uh, the phenomenon of tech companies engaging in lots of discussions and doing a lot of hand-wringing and hiring people into new positions that will do things and, and all that. So uh, as far as you're concerned, as you think about this, What role have dating apps played specifically in the spread of non-consensual pornography, both when we're talking about so-called revenge porn and dick pics, and when it comes to online harassment generally? Like, what have they uh, done to make things worse or better, if there there was ever such a thing? (laughs) And back to that terminology question, right, about the non-consensual pornography term that we still tend to use sometimes usually denotes someone's private sexually explicit images being used in a way or published or disclosed in a way that's without their consent. And that's, that's what we often focus on, but you've raised the, another kind of non-consensual pornography in the sense of imagery that is imposed upon a person, right? So the, the non-consensual 
uh, disclosure in the sense of, I think that you should see this picture of my genitalia, even though you've never asked for it, right? The kind of cyber flashing question. So you're right that there's more than, it's more than just whether you have been the person depicted against your will. It's a question of whether you're being non-consensually sort of subjected to someone's um, explicit imagery. And the dynamics between those two things can be very interesting sometimes. And what certainly seems to be true is that dating apps are making both of those kinds of problems I don't know if worse is the right word, but certainly making it easier for this kind of interaction to happen, both in the sense that there are people who are willing to give or to provide uh, sexually explicit photos as part of the dating ritual. This is much more common now than it used to be. People ask for it. Men in particular ask for those kinds of images a lot more than they used to. And so that's it, it creates a possibility for more of that non-consensual disclosure. And when it comes to the cyber flashing, kind of the, the the non-consensual audience, right? It's it's difficult sometimes to understand what the psychology is here, because surely some of the time when this happens, it's a misguided, good faith may not be the right word, but a sense of, well, this is obviously what you want, right? And sometimes it's an act of aggression, and it's a bit hard to tell sometimes which one it is, but certainly dating apps have made that more uh, typical as well. And to the extent that dating apps shape norms, which undoubtedly they do, seeing that kind of behavior normalize on both ends, right? That especially women and girls are thinking they need to provide sexually explicit photos because that is that is now considered standard. And men are increasingly thinking, well, obviously this is the kind of photo I should send as well because clearly this is welcome. I don't think dating apps have done enough to try to to emphasize consent and initiation and clarity around these kinds of expectations. And like everything else that moves online, there are just so many ways where you can take things out of context. And all those pieces of information that you may give about yourself on a dating app find their way into your physical life and connections that can be made and aggregated. All of that just creates a lot more potential for harm. So following up from that, what more would you recommend that dating apps do to try to make it a more safe space? And follow up question, why will they not do that? (laughs) So to the first, I think a lot of that question can be answered by what people who use these, these sites are telling these companies over and over again, because again, this is no longer a mystery. This is not a, oh, we just didn't know what was going to happen. We, we now know what the problems are. Sexual harassment is a problem. Racial slurs are a problem. Non-consensual nudity is a problem. Offline harassment is a problem. We know that these things exist. Now, some of them are difficult because there's that whole debate around background checks and, and how, yes, they would be a good thing for companies to employ as, as kind of a standard practice. There's the danger that that creates a false sense of security because a lot of this troubling behavior will never get reported to police and there won't be anything that actually turns up in a background check. So that's that's a tricky one. But trying to design your app with incentives in mind, right, healthy incentives in mind to think about, okay, here's a here's a feature we're going to allow in this app. How is it going to be used in a terrible way? And how can we make sure it, it won't? That it seems clear that dating apps instead have just gone with whatever they think will create the most engagement, will sort of really serve their bottom line commercially and worry about the problems as they come up to the extent that they worry about them at all, at which point it is almost always too late. And this ties to your, your follow-up question, which is why is that? Why do they keep doing that? It, then the answer is because they can because we have unfortunately let these companies believe that, uh, at least as a legal matter, they're not responsible. 
And the idea that somehow the industry will regulate itself, it'll do the right thing, that it'll dedicate the time and the resources to trying to figure out these safety features, if that was ever realistic, we certainly know that it's not realistic now. And that has a lot to do with this legal protection that the tech industry gets as a whole called Section 230. And until that changes, what you will have still, even after all these scandals, is an industry that mostly moves fast and breaks things and then maybe talks about how to fix them after the fact. And again, because there's so much power in these apps to shape norms and expectations, it's going to be too late. And so we're always sort of chasing after the problem as opposed to designing the solution from the very start. Marianne, could you tell our listeners more about the work of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative? How does it help victims of online abuse and, and how can this victims best reach out? When Holly Jacobs came to me to talk about her situation where no one really seemed to want to help her or to even understand the magnitude of what had happened. And just to underscore that what had happened in her case, as happens in so many people's cases, is that when these private photos are disclosed without consent, they're sent to people's employers, to their students, to their families, to their current intimate partners. Um, They're posted online on sites where people's children can find them. It will affect every aspect of a person's life, especially if that that imagery is connected to someone's name. So you type in their name in a search engine and this is all that comes up. And Holly would describe sometimes how, you know, any of the accomplishments she'd ever felt proud of in her life, whether that's completing her PhD or being a good daughter or being a a nice person or uh, publishing an article, you know, you you type her name into a search engine and all that would come up is just a scroll of pornographic links. Like that's what she was reduced to and describing how, how that it made her go quiet, right? She withdrew from everything, from intimate relationships, from her job, from her work, her education. And what we we took as kind of the motivating force, or what she began as the motivating force for the organization was to not let that happen to someone again. And what that meant was to take a comprehensive approach to the problem of image-based sexual abuse, but also other forms of online harassment. And the three major prongs of that approach that we took are are legislative, technological, and social. And what that means is we try to find the places where the law hasn't caught up to evolving uh, forms of abuse and change them where necessary. So that's our legislative reform work. Technological reform in the sense that we recognize that dating apps and social media sites and other online intermediaries are the they are in some ways the gatekeepers of a lot of this material. And if they choose to crack down on this kind of material, we don't have to wait for the law to catch up. We could actually do something today. And after several years of advocating for, for these changes, we, we did in 2015 finally see a turnaround um, on the part of Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, Reddit, and Google, which was the biggest one to say, we now have a no non-consensual pornography policy. And the Google one was so important for all the reasons I just mentioned, that if you're now able to delink uh, that kind of imagery from your name, if you're able to get those sites pushed down, if if these are not things that can surface from a, a search of your name, this is this this overnight did more for victims than probably any law ever will. The problem is that these companies, again, don't necessarily have the motivation to do any of these things. And so there again, we are calling for legislative reform that will make this stick because as we saw with the case of Twitter, just to take one example, for a while, you might actually have someone in charge who somewhat cares about these issues and may implement policies that will make it better 
on the platform than, than worse. And then someone else might come and take over and just decide they're going to roll back all those policies and bring all that stuff back. And so that's how, how much right now we are at the whim of any CEO. And that should not be the case. It should be a legal matter. And the social reform part is really broad-based. We try to provide resources for, for survivors and victims themselves, as well as trying to raise awareness about what the problem is, how serious it is, try to educate everyone from judges to police officers to employers to educators about what it means when someone is going through this, and try to get people to understand why it's so serious. And that's essentially what CSRI is focused on. And some of those resources that we offer are our online safety center, which is kind of a checklist of things for people who are facing online abuses and offers things like assistance with um, how to fill out some of the forms to get material taken down or to request it being taken down and a roster of attorneys that offer uh, low cost services to people who are seeking legal representation. And if we ever are able to get the funding to expand our operations to also offer mental health resources, which is what a lot of people are seeking as well when they are affected by this. So I have a question for you. Of those three prongs you talked about, you know, most of us are not decision makers at big tech industries and most of us are not lawyers. So for most of us, if we're thinking about what we can do uh, to help with this problem, we're looking at the social reform element. And and actually, I have one question for you here. I think it's so wonderful what all your organization is trying to make available to victims. But I'm also wondering, do you all interact with offenders or try to reach out to them? And, and if so, in what ways? And how do we help them since they're really the problem? It's a great question. And certainly trying to figure out perpetrator demographics, um, demographics and who is doing this and why are they doing this is a big research question for us. So it's difficult um, because, you know, it is not often the case that offenders are the ones contacting us. But we did a survey in 2017 that asked questions not only about whether the respondent had experienced this kind of behavior, but whether they'd ever perpetrated it. And one of the most illuminating results from this was that going back to the question about terminology, when we talked about revenge porn, when we talk about the, the kinds of legislative and reforms that we need, there was this tendency to think that, well, obviously, one of the elements of the crime should be that you were trying to hurt the person, that this has, that, that needs to be a, um, an aspect. One of the most difficult legislative battles for us has been to emphasize that while it is sometimes the case that people who do this are doing this to hurt the other person, in some ways, the more chilling and more fundamental dynamic is they don't see the people that they are hurting as people. It's not a conscious, I want to destroy you. It's a, you are an object to me and I don't care about you as a human being. And the study we did reaffirmed that in some ways because 79% of the respondents said that they did it for some reason other than to hurt the person. And that, it seems like a lot of the world was surprised, but we were actually not that surprised by it. And I can tell you that it has such consequence because when the ACLU shows up to battle our bills and say that, oh, you're trying to end free speech on the internet, they use uh, that kind of problem to say, oh, you need to have a definition of this crime that requires it to be harassment. And we keep saying, that's not what this is. And we have harassment laws already. That's not the issue. The issue is you are taking someone's private information without consent. And your reason for doing so doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter if you meant it as a compliment. It doesn't matter if it never even occurred to you to think about what the impact was on the victim. It matters that you did it and you knew that you didn't have permission to do it. 
So that's been a big part of this. And, and that social aspect of what can we do about, what can all of this do about this is to emphasize that part of it, to understand that whatever is on someone's mind when they disclose this might not have anything to do with harassment. It might be this just that they think they are entitled to that person's body and to the representation of that person's body. And we are very much trying to deter that from happening. So one of the more controversial parts of our position is that criminal laws are an essential part of the response. And what we try to explain, because we are also broadly speaking, critical of the criminal justice system and not enthusiastic about carceral penalties, is to say that in that same survey, the vast majority of respondents who admitted to engaging in this behavior, we gave them a series of options to say, what would have stopped you? What would have stopped you? And there were options like if I knew how much it would hurt the person, um, et cetera, if I knew I could be sued, and then if I knew I could go to jail, if I knew I had to register as a sex offender. And by, you know, just by an astounding margin, the answers were if there were some kind of criminal penalties attached to it, I wouldn't have done it. And what we try to emphasize to the general public as well as to skeptical legislators is this isn't about wanting to put people in jail. This is about wanting to make sure these people who are thinking about doing this don't do it because it's not like many crimes or many torts where you can make a person whole afterwards. There's nothing about sending an offender to prison or uh, giving money to the survivor that's going to undo what's actually happened. So the emphasis has to be on what would deter them from engaging in this behavior. And we saw this really interesting moment um, several years ago during the so-called celebrity hack that you know Jennifer Lawrence's pictures and everybody, all these female celebrities' pictures were everywhere, and people were unapologetic about looking at them, unapologetic, and they were popping up everywhere. And then one of the victims made clear that she was a minor in the photos, and her pictures and her pictures alone overnight basically disappeared because, and and I don't think it's because people thought, oh, now I have ethical you know, uh, feelings about the fact that she was, I don't think that was it. I think it was, wait, that's actually a crime. That's actually a federal crime. And those pictures are coming down overnight. And they did. So I do think that a huge part of that emphasis has to be on saying, you've got to understand that criminalization is necessary here, not just because it is the right way to address something that affects not just an individual victim, but the social fabric and the, and the values we hold dear, but also as a way of making sure that people don't engage in this behavior to begin with. Yeah, I mean, incentives matter at the end of the day, <laughs> and, and they really do uh, in this context. And it's very interesting, the story you're telling about the celebrity hack, because it does go to show that while it's difficult to pull back some of these images, in some situations, it's obviously not completely impossible right. because once this was designated as child porn, right, all of a sudden action is being taken and people don't want to go to jail. And while they might not have all disappeared, um, certainly a significant percentage did. So that is very, very, very telling. So, I mean, Marianne, you yourself have been threatened and harassed online for years, uh, including via death threats horrific imagery of all sorts. Many women's speech has been chilled through these kinds of threats. And in fact, many women have chosen to just withdraw from the internet and from the public sphere altogether because they were so afraid for themselves and or for their families. How have you managed to keep going, both in terms of maintaining your safety 
and dealing mentally with this kind of hateful and frightening language and behavior around you. It's an ongoing challenge. The kind of sometimes intended, although maybe not always intended effect of a lot of this harassment is precisely to get women in particular to stop talking, to withdraw from these spaces, to ease up on their efforts. And and certainly when the early days of of attempting to legislate against non-consensual pornography, there was just a a ton of of directed threats that said, I will will find you and I will sexually assault you. I'll take pictures of it and I'll put them up to get you to stop what you're doing. So it was very, it was extremely blatant, you know, what the intentions were. And, And I will say that it is a, a luxury in some ways for me to say I've, I've continued to talk partly because I feel more, I think I'm probably more insulated than most, right? That because I am not um, a target of the crime itself, but, you know, of, of threatened future crimes, there, that, that does give me a little bit of insulation from, from the issue in a way that I think direct uh, victims and survivors don't have. They don't have a choice. I'm also insulated by the fact that I have an academic job, by the fact that I you know, have resources at my disposal if I need them to try to at least address some of the more serious security concerns. And these are, these are advantages that many people don't have. And I think there's a sense for me personally that if I have those advantages, I should use them because there's so many people that won't have them. I don't delude myself into thinking that means I can always keep myself safe because Unfortunately, that is not something anybody uh, can guarantee, but I do think that for me personally, it, it means that I should, if I can, take advantage of the relative security I have to, to continue and that we do need people to speak for be other people when they can't speak. And I think that the, to the psychological, emotional impact of it, it's that it is important to me to feel that I can translate some of that, that experience into what will hopefully at some point become good work, right? That that we will be able to change norms and laws. And so that personal experience with it, being on the receiving end of it, that it's not a waste in the sense that I can use that energy, both my sense of anger about it, because it makes me angry sometimes, and whatever sense of fear, and try to channel that into this larger social change so that other people don't have to face it, or at least not face it uh, without any support. I'm torn on whether to ask you a more what do you do and what do you recommend that women do to feel more capable of defending themselves and also to ask you more about (laughs) what is legally being done. I guess I'm going to go for the what can women do to defend themselves first and maybe we can get back to legally what is the status Mm -hmm. of things. But I understand you have become a martial arts expert and, (laughs) um, and is that something that was directly influenced by your line of work or unrelated. What do you recommend about self-defense and how that can help women? And and can you tell us some about your own story there? My interest in Krav Maga actually started when I was in Chicago. So this is back when Irina and I were overlapping at the University of Chicago. And it came, it, it was because I had been followed home one night and it was it was having this very long kind of conversation with myself as I'm walking through these dark streets thinking, I can't really do anything. That is, I can't call the cops and say there's someone who's acting creepy because that doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem to rise to the level of a crime. It's but but if something happens, something happens. And it was this feeling of helplessness that I just got very angry about and had a conversation with a friend of mine who said, you, you know, I had said something along the lines of I wish I knew a martial art. I wish I knew something that would make me feel as though I weren't completely helpless in a situation like this. 
And he said to me, you know, there is this form of martial art called Krav Maga, which is essentially just about making sure that you get home safe. Because I had said, you know, I don't have 10 years at this point to train and try to get. And he said, this is it, it, the entire purpose of it is really just so that you can learn essentially how to break something and leave. <laughs> and and I thought, well, that sounds perfect. And that's how I got in, interested in it, because that's what I was told it was really about. And and true true to the description, the emphasis is really on learn just enough, right, so that you can get home safe and uh, try to avoid these kinds of conflicts, try to figure out the signals and cues that happen before a bad situation occurs, but don't feel as though, you won't have to feel as though if you learn this art, you won't feel as though you were completely defenseless. And when I started learning it and then eventually became an instructor, the most important thing in some ways that I have learned, especially when I teach all women classes, which I did for a while, is the psychological impact of, of knowing that that you you are not just kind of a target, because what that does is it makes you approach social interactions differently. And I would say to my my classes, I don't know if you all share this feeling, but how much mental space is occupied by your fear of a man in particular doing something violent if you displease them in some way? And how constraining that can be, right? Whether that's from you know taking a different route to work or choosing not to do something you love, like to go for a jog, all of these ways in which we have to limit what we wear or where we go because of that sort of fear in the back of your mind. And I said, it's incredibly liberating for me to not really have that fear. And again, I'm not deluding myself into thinking it's magic, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to get the better of someone in every situation. It's important to be realistic about what self-defense can and can't do, but that I don't have to be at the mercy of someone's whim that day. And the other part of it is that it teaches people, all people, the importance of your own space and your own boundaries in a physical sense. So one of the first things we teach our students is if someone comes within, like, say, arm's length of you and you back up so that you have that arm's length distance again, because it's striking distance that we're mostly worried about, and someone continues to try to close that gap, that's a red flag. And that's someone you shouldn't talk to because that's someone who's deliberately crossing boundaries for reasons that are not necessary. And teaching women and girls that in particular to say, you own this space. No one has the right to come and talk to you. You don't owe someone directions or the time or, hey, you're pretty, none of that. You don't owe them anything. And once they cross one boundary, that's good enough reason for you to be out of that situation. And just just affirming, I can't tell you how many times students would say, but I don't want to seem rude. And I feel like that would be impolite. And emphasizing to them, no is a complete sentence, and this is your space and no one deserves to be in it unless you want them to be there. That kind of validation, I think, was already, you know, getting getting pretty far, I think, in terms of just the way that we mentally navigate our space. So, and being able to back that up with physical defense, I think is incredibly, incredibly important. Again, there are no silver bullets, there is no one fix all, but but this is really, really important to get a sense of how your body can defend itself if you need to, and to just get yourself in the habit of saying, I own my own space. And that is true in the physical sense, and it should be true in other senses as well. So you have a new book coming out next year called Fearless Speech. Can you tell us and our listeners more about that? Because the title alone sounds intriguing. (laughs) Right. So the title comes from... Um, this ancient Greek word, which sounds very boring, but I think is very exciting, but this ancient Greek word, parousia. And the reason why I'm looking at it is because our conception in the United States of what free speech is, 
is in many ways derived from the ancient Greeks. We, we borrow lots of our ideas from them about democracy and about deliberation. And the term that the Greeks use for free speech is this term parousia that actually should probably not be translated as free speech because it's much better translated as fearless speech. And what the Greeks meant by it is that the most important kind of speech for democracy is not the kind of speech where people simply say whatever they want to say without any regard for the consequences. And what I'm arguing in the book is that version, what I've just said, is what I would call a reckless speech kind of model. And that's what Americans have mostly been sold as, as their conception of what free speech is. Fearless speech is about talking from the position of less power to more power. Now, of course, power is always relative, but someone speaking who has less power than someone who has more power and speaking to them in a way that criticizes their power and really importantly does so in a way that creates a risk because they're criticizing power but tries to absorb that risk for the speaker him or herself in contrast to what i'm describing as the reckless speech paradigm which essentially doesn't care about the risk they create for other people so that primary difference is the kind of speech that we should really valorize and think of as being essential to democracy is the kind that takes those kinds of risks, but takes those kinds of risks for the speaker themselves, as opposed to jeopardizing other people's safety, other people's dignity. And what I want to do in the book is kind of replace the, the canon that we have, right? Because when most people think about our First Amendment heroes, it's Nazis and pornographers, and I think we can do better. And it's not a question about saying, well, that means certain kinds of speech needs to be punished. It's about well, what kind of speech should be promoted. What are the kinds of examples throughout history where we can really look to see these are people who were risking things for their speech, not risking other people's safety and security, but risking their own. And let's celebrate that and let's have that become really part of our free speech tradition. I can't wait to read it. That sounds like <laughs> such a compelling book. I, I've definitely become a fan and I imagine many of our listeners uh, will as well and will will be interested in reading your work. Can you tell us also on the legal front, what are some advances? What is being done in that level to combat these issues that we've been speaking about today? Some recent legislation, what direction is it heading? Yes, and I'm hoping that this legislation will finally pass this year, but I'll talk for a little bit about the SHIELD Act. The SHIELD Act is a, a bill that's been proposed before in Congress a few times. Uh, its first iteration was actually in 2016 under the name the Intimate Privacy Protection Act. And it's what we have been calling at, at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, we have been calling for essentially since we began, which is a federal law that would prohibit the unauthorized disclosure of private sexually explicit information. We have gotten very, very close uh, many times in the past to passage, and then we've always been blocked at the end by an objection, oftentimes from some sort of a libertarian kind of bent, which is to say this is something that is censorship or that this is not properly defined or we don't want to create new crimes. And we're in the midst of, of dealing with those objections again, because they come up every single time we get close to passage. And most recently, this, the, the bill did advance out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is a very encouraging sign. And we are hoping that that means that the Senate when it, will vote on it um, as a whole and that the House will, will match it and that we will finally get this provision because there are many countries that are well ahead of us at this point that have actually done, have taken real steps to, to prohibit this practice, and we have not. So we have been left with, in this country, kind of a patchwork of state laws, which I will say, we're in much better position with that now than we were in 2013. 
because when we started our work, only three states had laws against non-consensual pornography. And today that's 48, plus the District of Columbia and two territories, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The problem being that these are an uneven passage because the crime gets defined in so many different ways. It's often treated as a very minor offense that will never actually get properly investigated. We're in desperate need of this federal legislation. So that's something I really do hope will happen soon. And the other thing that I hope will happen soon is significant and meaningful Section 230 reform. So that law that I made reference to before that protects the tech industry you know, broadly in the sense of saying, if you are connecting speakers to speakers, you're not really responsible for what any speaker says, I think really does need some serious revision. We do need to impose some sort of accountability that looks more like what other industries have to deal with. That would be another key piece of this to actually make these companies responsible for some of their own practices. In the meantime, while we're waiting for legal reform, and you have certainly played a huge role in in making things advance in that area at the state level, and now Hopefully we're almost there at the federal level, right? Fingers crossed. But in the meantime, what advice would you give to users of dating apps? Because this is one of the big themes of our show, like to users of dating apps in terms of the most important safety measures you think that they should implement for themselves. With the caveat that I do think that it's a structural problem that will never be solved by individual solutions, Um, at the same time, we want to be pragmatic, right? That, yes, we have to wait for structural change. And in the meantime, are there steps that we can take to keep ourselves safe, but always wanting to make sure that we understand that that is the conversation, right? These These are pragmatic realities that people have to face, but they shouldn't have to, they really should not have to, as a normative matter, be expected to solve a structural problem with an individual solution. But a few things that I would say is are as true on, on dating apps as I think they are in other kinds of contexts uh, that involve dating patterns or other kinds of dynamics, which is really back to that notion of boundary crossing, right? That that is a red flag. Someone who is trying to get you to send them information, whether it's a nude photo or something else when you're not ready to, that that is in itself already a red flag. And just to be very, very aware that someone who's pushing you to do something that you are not ready to do in any context is someone you don't want to trust. If you do trust somebody enough to send a sexually explicit photo, I think the recommendation is make it one that will not immediately identify you. Try to keep your face out of it or any identifying characteristics out of it. Be mindful of your surroundings because People can now geolocate from a detail they see in your background. So just be aware that pretty much anything you send in a photo, if you're not very careful, could be used to find other things about you and your family and the people around you. So it isn't just your privacy, but the privacy of those you care about. Try to keep your dating profile separate from the rest of your life. So to the extent that you can not have your last name and certainly any details about your actual address, try to use a photo that isn't connected to your other social media profiles or easily linked to you in some other way. And just always be mindful that you, as with with any kind of interaction, trust is something that should be built up over time. And that the more you can do to know about a person in a way that's that can't be, that cannot be sort of manipulated. So that if you are about to meet this person in person for the first time, can you do a video chat before? Can you get a sense of what they look like and how they seem before you actually are in a place physically with them? That's that's always helpful. And 
you know, to keep in mind just good dating protocol generally, which is meet in a public place, tell somebody where you are, have someone be able to check on you. Don't get in a situation where you might be isolated, right? Where people wouldn't be able to know where you are or what might've happened to you and trust your instincts about a lot of these kinds of things. And particularly for women, I guess I would say, try not to let that, I do think that we, especially when it comes to dating, there is such an emphasis for women in particular to be nice, for women to not seem as though they are being judgmental or critical or impolite. There's just so much that we tell women that they have to be all the time, even against their own instincts, right? Even if you've got a bad feeling, but you feel like, oh, but I shouldn't say it this way because. And I, I, and I guess I should say here, I, I am cognizant of the fact that, that, that there is a very good reason for why we tell women to be polite. It's because men don't handle rejection well. So there's a, there's a realistic reason for this. But I just, so whatever that balance is that you can achieve for yourself um, about not feeling that you have to be polite to people, you don't owe anybody your time. There is really no such thing as leading somebody on, right? Like if you, what I mean by that is if you've chosen not to interact with someone, you always have that right. And it doesn't matter what you did before. It means that you have chosen today. You don't want to interact with this person. That's a complete sentence. You don't have to explain at the same time being aware that because our society has done such a terrible job at helping men understand what rejection is and why it's not something that they should connect with anger. That is, that is the biggest, in some ways, I think that's the biggest lesson we're missing out on. Linking back to a question about abusers and why they do what they do. I wish that dating apps, given the kind of given the kind of potential for influence that they might have, would work on that, would work on maybe figuring out how one of the healthy norms that they could could try to incorporate in some way in their structure is how do you talk about rejection? How do you talk to men in particular about rejection? And to do this in a healthy way about expectations and about entitlements so that dating doesn't become kind of a hunting ground for predators, because that's what I fear sometimes it, it is. So that's a, that's a tall order, but I, I do think being aware of those dynamics and trying to be as sort of thoughtful about them as possible um, can be of some help. What great advice. I mean, this conversation has been, I'm going to say maybe equal parts disheartening slash frustrating, but also in some ways inspiring, um, because I think you've been very clear that primarily what we've been talking about today is a structural issue. And, and so the frustrating and disheartening parts in large part are why is it that these technology-based companies and even our state and federal lawmakers aren't taking this more seriously. And then of course, you know, on a personal level, just kind of being like, what is wrong with people that they think that this is an acceptable way to behave? And so all of that's really frustrating and I think highlights as far as, so what can we do about it? If change really needs to occur on a structural level, primarily, in addition to this wonderful individualized advice you have given, uh, what can an individual person do? You know, it sounds like something else that individuals can do is, be intentional about who you vote for and reach out to your representatives. Let them know what matters to you and uh, what values you would want to see reflected in the legislation that they pass. Also, it sounds like supporting your organization would be a great way that our listeners could support the good work that you all are doing towards influencing structural change. How can our listeners support your organization? Well, honestly, the best thing, well, there's two two things I would say that for uh, one, 
just getting the word out, right? That we exist, that we have a lot of resources, that we are in this space and have been in this space. This is our 10th anniversary. So it's now been a decade of advocacy. Um, So just letting people know that we exist as a resource. The other big thing is, is funding. To the extent that people are able to donate, we would be grateful because right now, we are we are basically facing much higher demand than we can possibly ever provide support for. Um, we are trying to expand our helpline. We're trying to expand into mental health resources. We would love to have more pro bono attorneys, um, and maybe I'll, I'll I'll say that as well. Any professional who could who would be willing to 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 offer their services at a lower rate for survivors, that's always incredibly helpful. So to provide survivors with what they need. Um, so those are some of the ways that people could really, I think, support us particularly, but also just support more generally survivors. And that part about social, you know, consciousness raising, that part is something, you know, really anybody can do. We offer lots of resources on our site for people to get educated about these issues and to just spread the word. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marianne, for this amazing conversation. I feel like we packed so much information thanks to you in this in this one hour that we've been talking and and the way that you're able to articulate what has happened both historically and what needs to happen in the future, I think makes it much clearer for our listeners, including our listeners who don't have a legal background, but who want to educate themselves about these issues, that it's really taught them so much as to what it is they can do and what they should be thinking about and what they should be advocating for. So thank you for all of the really important work that you do. And thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for such a great conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at SwipeStrangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.